Section 3 of Birds and Nature, Volume 12, Number 2, September 1902. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by N.D. Woods. Old Fashioned Outings, Part 2. While in our camp on the shore of Gloucester Harbor, many were our adventures first and last, some of our own choosing, some not. In the mouth of Rafe's Chasm is a big oblong-seamed rock, considerably lower than either wall at that point, with perpendicular sides and a top slanting to the lower wall, which is the west, and the natural approach. At low tide, the boys made a point of leaping the western channel and climbing up across the narrower eastern one. And where the boys went, the younger girls expected to follow. How was it, I wonder, that girls began to be tomboys just then? They have kept it up ever since, but it is no longer a matter of reproach. The first girl who did this held the championship for some time, but the smaller ones qualified in the end. We were there one day at half-tide, when a good deal of surf was running, so we established ourselves well up on the rocks. But our Newfoundland dog elected to go down and enter the water at the western corner of the chasm. He was immediately swept out, and out started somebody's eyes. You've lost your dog! But even as we gazed in consternation, the wave walked back and returned him. A strange sight it was, that black dog advancing as in a vehicle standing unconcernedly in a tall green wave and, when it arrived, walking calmly out and shaking himself. No suction, no struggle, his feet just on a level with the flat ledge. Out he walked and he was hugged, dripping as soon as we could lay hold of him. The Magnolia Swamp stretches far toward Essex and Manchester and with the surrounding heath and forest forms a wilderness which a wild animal might range for miles, crossing now and then a lonely road. And in the summer of 1884, two of us saw a very odd wild animal in the old road. Descending suddenly from the hill above, we saw a dingy white creature jogging slowly along in the middle of the road, a short stone's throw ahead. It was clumsily made, and its gait was awkward and lumbering. It had short legs, very proud hindquarters, no perceptible tail, and long, slightly wavy white hair, exactly the same all over without mark, spot, or difference. We mended our pace and gained on it, when the creature did the same without looking round and plunged into a dense cover of briar with the heavy rolling gait of an elephant and at such angle that we never saw its head, nor could we trace its line of retreat in the underbrush. Now, what was that? Please don't say poodle or woodchuck or skunk or raccoon. It bore no resemblance to either, except in the size and color to the poodle. The only thing I ever saw at all like it was a stuffed lynx in a New Hampshire town. In color, length of hair, and absence of tail, they were exactly alike. The stuffed specimen was twice as big as the live animal, and long-limbed in proportion, while the latter was thick-set and clumsy like a cub. One September day at sunset, I was sitting on a low rock platform trying to paint a great green wave which reappeared at regular intervals, gathering under the rock with a growl and falling on the shore like lead. The effort looked like a tin wave 
and an artist said it should not have been attempted. The opposite headland was better, fresh from one ducking and expecting another from the pale green border surging up out of the gray, away from the eye. At last, the sole companionship of the sulky wave became oppressive, and turning landward, I looked up into an uncanny sky, a wild red afterglow barring the slate with flame color, and smelt a skunk and felt far from home. And there, on top of the ridge, the highest point in that great amphitheater of wooded hills, the only habitation in sight, it stood out black against those flaming bars amid the silhouettes of dying pines. The dog would have been a support, but he wasn't there. After some experience of sketching parties, he had given up attending. Collies are particular, and this one hated to sit the wind in his face. When we first had him, he dogged every footstep for fear of being left behind. But at this stage of his development, he would not stir a step with sketching material or a gardening hat. He knew too well that such accessories led to nothing. Yet his polished behavior in other respects had so impressed a small visitor in long greenway robe and cap that when she made her series of curtsies to the family's semicircle on leaving, she curtsied with equal gravity to the dog as he lay chin to the floor half under the table. And that was quite right. Doubtless, we all bow to persons far less deserving than this forgiving dog who always hastened to console you when you trod on him. However, on this occasion, I had to get home alone and dodge skunks unsupported under the awesome sky. The best part of a mile away, all the way up the hill, the last pitch abominably steep and rough. The choice of sight would have done credit to a robber baron, but the land falls away gently to the Manchester Road on the other side. It took months with a derrick and oxen to forge the connecting link, however, and one section which rounds a hill and crosses a gully looked like the bed of a mountain torrent for weeks. The camp of 1865 led to the choice of 1883, as many a camp has done from Roman days on. The Peacock War settled central Massachusetts as the Revolution filled up New Hampshire and Vermont. It was not so much that the land stood empty as that men went out and saw the land that it was good. Behold a byproduct of war. If the Mary Greenwood was as our native heath, so too was the water. It was about a third of the mile off the rock that he of the rifle once had a difference with a shark. He was out alone in a dory when the shark happened along and thought, being there, he might as well see if he couldn't upset the boat. So he came swarming up on the oar until the youth got tired of it, and standing up balanced himself not to overreach in case the shark proved slippery and thrust the butt as hard as he dared between the eyes, which were about a foot apart. But the shark was not slippery. He felt rough and as hard and solid as a ledge, while the youth felt as if he had hit the same. However, his honor seems not to have enjoyed it either, for he soon settled in the water and circling lower and lower two or three times disappeared. Some years before this, this boy was out with another when the harbor was full of herring and a whale appeared which had followed the schools in and he popped up so frequently and blew in such an unexpected places 
that the boys deemed it best to make for the nearest land. Meantime, the whale rose in their wake with his jaws wide open in the middle of the school of herring, and they saw a lot of fish flipping dry in his throat. And the boat came in, and all the passengers stood on deck looking at him. And then he got excited and ran aground, the tide being low, on some shoals in behind the island, and thrashed about so. They thought he must have hurt himself. It was a thrilling afternoon. The dory is a proved little craft for serious business in rough water, while none can be better for ladies about rocks and beaches because it has a flat bottom and there is no keel to catch and leave you tipping about with the lap of the water running ever so far inside. Moreover, the dory has so much shear that very little of the bottom touches at one time, and if it hangs anywhere, you can take it by the nose and work it off quite easily. We fully appreciated the merits of a build which permitted crossing the harbor in good gowns to make a call we did not wish to spend a whole evening on, landing perhaps on a lonely bit of shingle with a sharp little sea thrashing in, firing all along the tops of the waves. We often went out to supper in dories, taking a small charcoal furnace, a griddle, and a pitcher of batter, and rowing down to some great flat sheets of rock made for the purpose on the point. There we pulled up the boats, set up housekeeping, and fried our flapjacks, first waiting to enjoy the sunset over the western shore reflected in the harbor. If you stay in the house, the sun always sets while you are at supper, if you notice. And this is nature's revenge on you for eating indoors instead of outdoors, like Christians. Then we rode home by moonlight, or perhaps by starlight, pausing to amuse ourselves by stamping on the bottom of the boat, startling the fish under us, and making them dart, leaving a phosphorant wig far below. If a thunder shower surprised us, we rolled the boats over and crept under. The valued shear allowed plenty of air. It is true, if the shower lasted too long, the water was apt to run down the rock and leave somebody in a puddle, while it might become painful to take too perfect an impression of the pattern of the rock on one elbow. But it's worth getting wet to cross the harbor in the rain with the drops hissing in the water and turning to pale fire wherever they strike. The dory is a stiff little craft, too, not easily upset, as some of our party proved at the beach one day. Half a dozen of them embarked in bathing dresses and went beyond their depth, stood up on the seats, and rocked with all their might. But this not affecting their purpose, the girls jumped out, and the two or three men left danced on the gunwale and finally overturned it. One starlight evening, two of us, escaping from the heat in town, were floating close in shore somewhere down near Black Bess, when suddenly, out of the darkness, arose the sound of a sailboat bearing down on us full tilt. We sprang up in dismay, though it was dead calm and we knew no boat could come where we were. We peered into the darkness, but nothing came, and the sound died as it sprung into being, full-grown, without crescendo, and without diminuendo. There was no splashing either, just the full steady rip of the cut water at speed. It lasted perhaps a minute and was a startling affair. Experienced persons say they never heard anything like it and suggest sharks. People always suggest that. What can you expect after Lyell said shark to our family pet, the sea serpent, which our own grandparents saw in 1817, 
from such a coin of vantage that if it had been a shark, one would think they would have known it. We all know the place where they were driving, along the edge of the cliff, when he saw the sea serpent at the base, on the white beach where there was not more than six or seven feet of water, and giving the reins to his wife, looked down upon the creature, and made up his mind that it was ninety feet long. He then took his wife to the spot, and she said it was as long as their wharf, and this measured one hundred feet. While they were looking down on it, the creature appeared to be alarmed and started off. Lyell's Diary This is an incredulous world. Does anyone ever read The Toilers of the Sea nowadays or remember the finale? Having purposely allowed the tide to catch him, the hero sits in a niche in the cliff awaiting death with his eye on the ship which bears away his beloved who has married the wrong man. And as the ship drops behind the horizon, the water covers his eyes. When we read that, with one accord, we made for the beach. And as soon as the tide served round a big ledge, we practiced that scene and found it unimpressive. As we expected, you float off. You can't stay there. And we thought Victor Hugo should really have practiced it himself. Helen Mansfield. End of section three. Recorded by N.D. Woods, Carlsbad, California.